I was ahead of myself and then looked back and said, oh, yeah, all this makes sense now. Of course, it makes sense now looking back, but in the moment, it's hard to, to figure out. Hi, you're listening to Looks Like Work. I'm your host, Hedva Kleinler, and yeah, it's the least pronounceable name you've ever heard, but you'll get used to it. I'm a serial entrepreneur who's obsessed with curiosity, creativity, and grit, and that's just to get started. I really can't get enough of learning more about people's career choices. What fulfills them? How do they deal with burnout, with heartbreak? How do they protect their boundaries? And is it all even working? Those are questions that keep me up at night and I hope to explore here. On this podcast, we'll have deep conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, people juggling a few jobs, sometimes even a few industries, sharing what looks like work for them. With that, on to the episode. I really hope you'll enjoy it. Eliza, thank you so much for coming on Looks Like Work. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. That's awesome. So Eliza Erskine is the founder of Green and Bowie Consulting, and we will hear all about it in a second. And I know Eliza through an amazing community called The Upside for consultants and agency owners. And after kind of following each other on LinkedIn for a while, liking each other's comments, standing from afar, Eliza has been really, really kind with her time and consulting me on something for a client. And when I heard your journey, Eliza, I was so curious. It was really so interesting to me how it seemed that you really knew what you were going to do from such an early age. So we'll get into it in a second. But before we dive in, Eliza, what looks like work for you? What looks like work for me? I love this question so much. Right now, work for me looks like being an ESG and sustainability consultant for high growth businesses. So that means helping them with environmental, social, and governance strategy, usually on a consultative basis. So anywhere from small projects like carbon footprint, environmental goal setting, and longer term strategy projects. So developing strategies for companies that don't have any strategies in place and helping them put that into practice in their business. And I also do a lot of B Corp certification. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it is cool. Yeah, it's kind of a nice mix of different things that I'm offering. A lot of my clients, the majority of them are service-based businesses. They're in the B2B space. A lot of software companies, fintech, that kind of company is usually who I'm working with. Yeah, so we have a lot of common ground there. Yes. And I was going, I'm like, I'm like kind of contemplating whether I should use my terrible, terrible dad puns, but I was going to say that ESG is such a hot topic right now. It (laughs) is a hot topic right now. It's, yeah, it's been exciting to see more and more expansion and interest and just people really seeing the value in it for their company. There's been so many different things, I think, that have affected that, but 
it's nice to see the results of sort of the perfect storm of ESG interest really come to life, especially in a smaller company, a newer company, which is my target. Yeah, I think that might not be as kind of obvious to a lot of our listeners. Like we can all see like how a large corporate would need ESG services, consulting, implementation. So can you go a little bit like I want to talk more about your career, but just so we have kind of the context, what does it mean when you're working with a more early stage company on ESG? So I, that has always been my niche. I became interested in helping that size of company get started and just was interested partly in the U.S. because, you know, 80% of the economy is driven by these kind of smaller companies. It's not just these big corporate conglomerates. So for a smaller company, what I'm providing is a little bit different than someone like a Salesforce or a Unilever or these companies with big established programs need. It's definitely a different opportunity to go in at the ground level and create a strategy for them because very often they're interested in ESG, but they don't know what that means for their business. And because it's so specialized for each business size and business culture and business market and industry, it's fun to go in and kind of figure out what that what that means for them. But very often it's earlier stages, both of the company and of ESG than we normally think of. You know, these aren't companies that are responding to different reporting indexes, for example. Like they're not advanced enough to be doing GRI reporting or have a huge ESG team. So it's cool to see them starting from the ground up and trying to figure out how to start a program for them. Yeah, I think one of the things that I found so interesting and really kind of resonated with me when we spoke last time was that a lot of times for an early stage company, the reason behind like investing in ESG is probably not necessarily, you know, what you mentioned that is more relevant for larger corporates and companies, but maybe a lot of like, it's very people-centered. It's, so it's because they personally care about it or because they want to attract employees, right, who actually care about sustainability and stuff like that and don't want to just like kind of take a company's word, oh yeah, we're kind of sustainable, or, you know, they want to attract business uh, from companies that that care about these things. Am I right? Like, can you kind of give us like a little bit deeper view on, on that than, than I know to say? Yeah, I think that's part of what has created this now perfect storm, I think, of ESG. So historically, this is my view and kind of what has happened. If you were not a consumer goods company or a beauty company or a food company or a giant, you know, Walmart, you could say our customers don't really care about sustainability or, you know, we're not that big. So we don't really need to start thinking about that. And now as climate change has become a daily reality for so many people, more and more people see the benefits of ESG. There's been a huge shift, especially for the companies that I'm working with. And number one, their employees are really interested in ESG. So I always say 
this is the example that I like to give, and I think it's true, is that if you're a software engineer and you care about climate change and you're great at your job, you have a choice of where to go. You can pick a company. You have power. Exactly. And if you have, if you're looking at four different offers and there's a company that says, here's what we're doing for climate change. These are our different ESG commitments. You're going to choose that company. And statistically, this is true. I've seen it happen in real life. So their companies are now using it from a retention perspective. They're using it from a talent perspective. And then the other thing that has created, especially in the B2B space, you know, suppliers are asking about it. Vendors are asking about it. People want to work with companies that share their values. And because so many, specifically from a carbon footprint perspective, so much of your carbon footprint is the goods that you buy and the services that you purchase. All of these companies are talking to each other and trying to pressure each other to improve their own footprint because that ultimately affects the company that's asking about it footprint. So it's just been a different kind of storm of kind of every stakeholder that you turn to, whether it's a customer, an employee, a vendor, a client, everybody is asking about ESG and it's forcing these companies to turn inward and say, okay, let's, let's do something about this. Apart from all of the business benefits, there's never been, I don't think a doubt of, yeah, we know, you know, this will save us money or this will be great for these different things, but now it's hitting home for companies in a different way and they're seeing their competitors do it, which is also pushing mm-hmm. them to so it's easier uh, for them to prioritize. Yes. It. And then I I don't want to discount the just changes that the SEC in the United States, the Security and Exchange Commission has said that they're gonna start asking public companies to disclose their climate risks and how they're thinking about them and how they are measuring their carbon footprint. That is getting a lot of people and companies, especially newly public companies, thinking about it in a different way and starting to move on making changes. So it truly is just every angle is coming together to create (laughs) this new like ESG world that we live in for so many companies, which is great, I think, in many ways. Yeah. And it's so interesting to see it all kind of come together because at least as someone who kind of looks at it from the sidelines, it hasn't been that way for very long. And what I found super fascinating on our previous call was to find out that even though it hasn't been that like front and center of people's minds, you almost always knew that you wanted to work somehow in this category or in this like world. Tell me, tell us more about it. Yeah, I think, so I started working at ESG 12 years ago and I was interested in in college. So like 15 plus years of sort of interest and then working in it and talking to people that have been in it for kind of 25 years and just getting their perspective. Like, did they know that, you know, this big change was coming and all these things. So I think it's for people that have known about it, it's been such a niche, but it's exciting to see it expand in a new way. And for, I mean, just on a personal level, I don't have to really explain, oh, this is what sustainability means, or this is what this is, or the companies that I used to deal with 
more, and this is true to some extent, would have a very specific ESG mission. Like now it's companies that don't make ESG front and center are also realizing the benefit of it. So it's just, it's just become more mainstream. Yeah. In a new, in a new way. So yeah, it's cool to see. I don't, I still am kind of thinking about what that will mean. And I'm curious to see even what the next 18 months will hold and if it will continue Mm. and how things continue to move. So can you share a little bit about what interested you, you know, growing up and what you thought you might do in the future and how it came into fruition? Yeah. So I grew up in the Pacific Northwest in Washington state and my parents were just always environmentally conscious. I think some of that is just, you know, Seattle and like those surrounding areas are kind of known for that. And I think that it is very true that just like we always recycled, we would order, I mean, my parents ordered seventh generation products in a catalog, like before Walmart and Target carried them, you had to get them from a catalog. Like when I learned about money and the stock market and investing, my dad was talking about, well, Philip Morris makes cigarettes and cigarettes are terrible. So we should not put our money in Philip Morris. And I'm not buying Nike shoes because Nike supply chain is having all these problems. Like this was in the nineties when nobody, you know, that was not a really common thing. It was in my house. Yeah. And that's also a level of conscientious and like awareness that I think still in many households, like it's, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. I do think it's rare. And I think it's just interesting to think about, you know, if you think anybody thinks back to kind of their own growing up, you just think that your family is like everybody else or your parents are like everybody else. Right. And I was interested in, in business. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I always liked, I mean, I still am a big reader and I really like English and that just didn't seem practical to study. I'm So I was like, I'll study business. And then in undergrad at like business school, I was in the business program at Boston University and somebody from Walmart came in and spoke about this is Walmart's corporate social responsibility program. And this is what we're doing with our trucks. And we're trying to reduce the amount of gas we use. And I was just like edge of my seat listening to this. And I turned to my friend and he's like asleep next to me. Like nobody was was really interested in this. Like, you know, the week before someone from like Bank of America came and spoke about like, this is, you know, what being a finance expert is. And everybody was just like, yes, this is what I want to do. And I was like, nope. That's news fast. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, that's not for me. And then the yeah, the Walmart guy comes in and I was like, wow, you can, you know, do this for business. And I remember like calling my parents and I was like, this is this is it. I want to help businesses be more environmentally sound. That's amazing. I love it when you have something that just speaks directly to you and like everything else kind of like, you know, it's like uh, almost like there's like kind of a limelight like on that thing and everything else kind of dims and it's like just like this aha moment. Totally. Yeah, it was exactly that. And so then it became a little difficult because at that point, so that was like 2006, at the undergrad level, there was no corporate social responsibility class or 
any, there was nothing combining business and social responsibility or any environmental anything. So I minored in environmental policy just to get more exposure to what the environment was and how that would work. And that was a lot of policy stuff, but eventually there was some business overlap. But even my senior year, I took a strategy, you had to take a strategy class and the strategy professor, the strategy professor said, I don't believe in corporate social responsibility, so I'm not going to teach it. Oh, wow. And I was just like, wow. Right. Can you imagine in 2022? Exactly. So I think just so much has kind of changed and shifted. And I think partly because I was in business school and so much of that is kind of financial and tied to that. Another lecture actually that I went to, someone from a responsible investing company came and spoke and they were talking about this is how we invest in companies that are doing good things. And this is how we encourage other people to use their money to invest in good, quote unquote, good companies, which is now, that was the original kind of ESG, environmental social governance, was very tied to ESG investing. And now companies have adopted that term in a different way. But that was where I started too, was in that ESG research and looking at these companies and seeing what they were they were doing. And again, in 2010, there was not a lot to look at. I was looking at small cap companies, so under a billion dollars. And there was just no, I mean, they had a code of conduct usually. And that was, there was not that a was lot. It. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of environmental or social. Listen, even from the diversity side, so the governance side, I mm-hmm. guess, of ESG, when I started, you know, the original iteration of my startup before it was called Emerge, it was called Lean On in 2015. And I started talking to corporates or, you know, larger startups about like how important it is. It was a lot of times considered as fluff unless there was someone who was super passionate about it in the executive team. It was like, oh, that's nice. Or, or yeah, it's really important. We should do that. But very, very hard to prioritize and keep it like kind of top of mind for the decision makers. So I could only imagine in like earlier in the 2010s, it was probably even much more so. Yeah, I think especially at the smaller company level, startup level. The other thing to When you think about, you know, Visa or these big companies that, you know, Coca-Cola put out sustainability reports in 2010, 2011, they had millions of dollars to devote to this. And they kind of helped bring the original proof cases of like, we're spending money on this and it's working or we're investing in a diverse workforce and here are the benefits that we've seen. But because it was only those big companies, a smaller company would kind of Or we'll do that when we're Coca-Cola size, or we don't need to do that until we're a bill, you know, multi-billion dollar company. We can't afford to do that now. Yeah. 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 And I think that tone has really shifted a lot, which is great. But yeah, there's been so much, I don't know, just, yeah, shifting, I guess, is the word that I would use that has had to happen. Yeah. And I, I think like just taking it back to you, I think it's so interesting that like the clarity that you had, not only about ESG, but kind of the junction or this like kind of juxtaposition between ESG and business, because 
otherwise you could have gotten into that policy route or so many other things, right? Yeah, I think the policy route was interesting to me. That seemed harder to do and to kind of to manage. That just seemed like pushing a rock mm-hmm. uphill in a different in a different way. Yeah, maybe also not seeing change so Yeah, quickly. and I think like the impact It's harder to witness. Mm-hmm. And I think because I was like business was my degree and I was always interested in kind of how companies work and how like that was the lens that I was looking at. I, and I didn't make the connection until later that so much of stuff that my parents talked about or those kinds of things. But I mean, I took like entrepreneurship classes in undergrad. That was my concentration in business was entrepreneurship. So I, I don't know. It was sort of like I was ahead of myself and then looked back and said, oh, yeah, all this makes sense now. Of course, it makes sense now looking back. But in the moment, it's hard to, to figure out. Yeah, that's so cool. So I want to, I'm just like, I didn't think about this question in advance, but Ever since we started talking on this call, I'm, I keep having this question, which maybe like, I'm probably projecting, listen, like this whole podcast is me projecting questions <laughs> and, you know, things that I, I'm debating with myself about and thinking about, and then I can just ask someone else and hear what they're thinking and how they're dealing with it. Yeah, I'm thinking like, your career is so aligned with your values. Like we always on, on looks like work on this podcast, we always discuss, you know, how yes. does your career and your work align with your values and with your well-being and with your boundaries and your, your life in general, etc. But with you, like your whole career, the whole point of it is so aligned with your values. And that makes me think about times in my career. One of them was, just a few days ago, when I had opportunities that weren't aligned with my values, and it was hard to turn them down, and also to maybe turn them down, you know, kind of graciously. <laughs> uh, right. I still remember when I had an opportunity with Philip Morris a few years ago with my startup. Oh. And I was like, I'm really grateful for this person who has made wants to make this intro and is kind of also right. asking me again, again if she can make this intro but I just really don't want yeah. to work with this company and I wonder because I'm guessing like maybe I'm wrong but I'm guessing that maybe on like the which companies to work with maybe you don't have that because companies coming to you you know you can just like help them like get more towards ASG but you How do you then take this kind of values alignment and extend it to other pieces or other parts of your career and your business? Oh, this is a good question. I was talking probably 18 months ago, two years ago, to someone talking about kind of like, how do you choose clients or how do you... And this was as much of like, I'm not getting... clients like no one is knocking on my door how do I make that happen and somebody told me well you have to kind of put out the type of companies that you want to work with and I was like well you know I'm really interested in service-based businesses or this or this and she said no like what are the company values that you would want to work with like from that perspective so like a woman-owned business for example or like 
a company that has, that is thinking about climate change in a different way or just putting out kind of the types. And some of that, I mean, was like respectful, fun, like a company that doesn't take itself too seriously and is more open to those types of things. So I think some of that helped long-term thinking was another one. And so just putting out those kind of markers, I guess, helped when a company came, then I could ask very specific questions of what is your motivation for doing this? Or is this something that you're kind of trying to check a box? Or, you know, how does this fit in with other strategic initiatives at the company? That makes those conversations easier. And I think because I'm pretty crystal clear, like I have different corporate values that are on my website. And I, once people see that or talk to me, I think that I'm pretty clear about naming those for the most part. So I think it, some people are like, oh, well, you know, you put those out there and then people say yes or no. And like, what if they say no? And I was like, the point is to get them to say no in some ways. Yeah. Like you have to be clear. That requires some courage because we were like, even like also doing our website, the Trims and Words, I was, um, I don't remember how I worded it. I think there was like, we have a no, no asshole policy or something like that. And I was like, yeah, what if people like look at it and kind of say, oh, who are they to, you know, to say that? And I was like, okay, so I probably don't want to work with <laughs> those people. Right. And that's part of also kind of feeling like, first of all, that that choice and, and that you're entitled to have that choice and you can select you know, and choose who you work with. And also uh, some confidence and feeling of abundance and feeling like it's not, you're not going to have to pick only, you know, out of a very limited amount, you know, number of clients. And then if, if those, like, if they don't pick you, then you're doomed, right? Right. Yeah, I think it does. I have thought about it in that way. The other way that I like to think about it is that if you have a values mismatch with a client or something where you're just like, uh, and you push the project through anyway, they're not going to be happy and you're not going to be happy. Like, it's just not. That's so true. It's not going to work. So I look at it more like, especially now with as many ESG consultants as there are, <laughs> sustainability <laughs> consultants. Like if I talk to somebody, I'm like, it would be a disservice, like from a, you know, true kind of original client service perspective, I'm doing them a disservice because there's someone out there that is more fit for them. So instead of trying to kind of yeah. jam this, together and yeah and you're not gonna be like if you have like a mismatch of like what you prioritize yeah then there's gonna be some sort of you know friction at, at some point right yeah and they're just not gonna get what they want so by sort of yeah by freeing them to say this is what i think and them to say mm, we think that something else would be better then i can say great, here's four other firms that you should talk to or send them to someone else. And I've been, I mean, I think we've all had clients where we're like, have taken them and then instantly have said, oh, no, maybe oh, sure. this wasn't. So just thinking about, you know, if that's the option, 
that's not a great place to be in. So it makes it a little bit easier, but it is hard to say, to stick to that, especially when you're in a drought or a lower month to want to just take. Yeah. Or just when it's like the market isn't amazing and you're like kind of looking around and saying, should I be concerned? Should I be preparing? Am I not right? You know, yeah. scared enough? <laughs> yeah, it definitely, I don't know if I'm unique, but I think that I've never questioned that. Again, I think just part of the way that I came into it and the way that I've always kind of thought about work and everything is like, well, you have to be, that has to be in alignment or it doesn't work. So along with uh, ESG kind of gaining more traction in the last few years, so has just being freelance and opening your own business, has that been something? Because you did say that you took entrepreneurship pretty early on. Have have you always seen yourself as an entrepreneur or like how, how has it been for you? Um, I think I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I think I was definitely, some of that appealed to me. I never, I, you know, wrote business plans at undergrad or had to do different stuff. And I never had a business idea that I was ever excited enough about to kind of keep going. I fell into consulting, I think in kind of an odd way because I did it. I was doing a master's in sustainability. And again, I was looking at these bigger companies because those are the case studies that people were talking about in 2014. It was, you know, Pepsi's doing this or Unilever is doing this. And I just kept thinking who is doing this for small companies. Like that was kind of the thesis of wanting to help them. It wasn't as much about what can, you know, me consulting, it was more filling this need for a quote unquote smaller business and kind of figuring out how to serve that market specifically. And then I was like, so I created a business in school that was not very well received. Like my professors were kind oh, of like, yeah, they were like, oh, this seems small and these companies don't have a lot of money, which was true. I, you know, kind of knew that. And the other original idea was to go through startups business plans and say, here are your ESG opportunities. Like that was kind of half of the business. And then the other half was the smaller, you know, companies that aren't ready for these big commitments. Like how do you build up a program? And so I had that idea and just kind of looked at it more from what, what I thought a company might need. And then when I finished school, I had all this extra time because I wasn't in school anymore. So I was like, oh, let me try and do this business and kind of help this size of company. My sister, this is the other thing that definitely helped me and was something that I don't think a lot of people start off with. My sister is a graphic designer, brand designer. So she was like, wow. That's a really useful skill set to have at home. Yes. So she was like, here's your website, here's your, you know, brand identity, here's everything that you need. Ooh, that's a good sister. Yeah. She's very generous. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So that, all that stuff was kind of built in from the beginning. And then I was like, oh, so now I have this website, but I mean, I had no idea. And thankfully, or I would not have done it. I don't think that I would have to like talk to people and sell this idea, I was like, oh, people will find my website. They'll just 
mail me a check based on my website <laughs> and they'll see the value of this immediately. Oh, in that world. Right? <laughs> and I sort of thought that was how it happened. I was so naive just about, oh, you have to, people need to find out about you and you have to explain the value and you have to show that you're mm-hmm. the expert and you can't just kind of show up and start working. So that was a pretty steep learning curve. But yeah, now that it's, you know, obviously hindsight of three plus years, it's easy to look back and say, oh, it worked out. But it was, it was brutal. Like I was like cold emailing people and just sort of trying all this different stuff that was not working. I'm still enjoying that fantasy of like, oh, they'll just find me (laughs) (laughs) to live in in the world. And ironically. Right. Like, don't, don't we all want to just like jump into that picture? <laughs> right. Live in like the SEO world. And ironically, now that is true. I mean, because I was like, oh, I need to like write blogs and like, yeah. So you built enough of it and enough time passed for that to actually come true. Yes. And I now, I mean, I think part of that too is the sort of like ESG is so hot right now. Like people were not searching in 2019 for like, what sustainability policy do I need? Or what is a materiality assessment? How do I think about sustainability at my company? And now they are. And because you started that before it was so hot, build kind of this repository for like Google to store and to pop up for people, right? Yes. Yeah. So now I talk to some people that say, oh, should I blog? And I my experience was like, yeah, if you can blog and then have it sit for 24 months and then suddenly be a hot topic. <laughs> it's so but true. It works. But it is true. It, it requires yes. a lot of patience, but it's, it, it's really, mm-hmm. really true. I started out as a blogger, so I, oh. I really believe in it. But I always tell... I always tell also potential clients, it's not, you know, it's not a magic potion. It's not going to work in a day. It requires patience and it will accumulate and it will work for SEO and it will work for like thought leadership and to like build up your expertise and your brand. But it's not going to, it's not going to be like a one day thing or maybe even after one year. Yeah. Yeah. That's not going to be the one thing that pushes a client over the edge. Like they'll find me that way. Yeah. But we still have to talk and, you know, still come to an understanding of what they want. Yeah. It's like either they'll find you that way or maybe they've found you another way, but then they'll Google you and it will be like another touch point, really proving your expertise and kind of giving them like kind of another gentle shove but it's not, you know, it's not the end all be all for sure. Yeah. It's just one of multiple, multiple pieces, I think. You know, one of the things that I really love that you said is like about your sister. First of all, I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I'm such a believer in sisters. I'm, I'm an oldest sister and I have. I'm, Me too. Oh, yay. <laughs> I'll yes. send you. I have so many TikTok videos to send you about being the oldest sister. <laughs> yes, I love those. I identify with those. You know, the oldest much. sister hotline one. <laughs> I feel like I'm mentioning these at every call that I have today. I don't know why I'm that moon. Um, (laughs) But beyond being a great sister who then gets, you know, (laughs) uh, great services (laughs) right back at her. Uh, And my sister, by the way, works with me also. So I 
<laughs> I totally relate. Oh, cool. Yeah. I think a lot of times it's so hard to think about, you know, starting a business, especially if you haven't done it before, especially if you're young, you know, or if it's something that doesn't, you know, it's not a obvious choice and stuff like that. But then sometimes you just play around, you buy the domain, yes. you do a thing on Canva, or you have your sister design a site <laughs> for you. And it all feels like play. It doesn't really feel real. But once you have that, suddenly it's much easier, right? Because suddenly it's not this unattainable, unrealistic, weird thing that lives outside reality. Because it's like, I feel like, even for our listeners who aren't entrepreneurs or business owners, a lot of times working from the outside in is so much more effective than like planning and strategizing all that is super important. Don't get me wrong, but sometimes you get so in your head and it's the things that are actually kind of outside you that help make things more real and less scary. Yeah. And I am a person that loves to plan and strategize. Yeah. Like if I had the opportunity to not. You're an oldest sister, Eliza. I, I know. Yeah. It's, it's really showing now. But yeah, I mean, I was like, I in probably third or fourth grade, I asked my parents for a phone book for Christmas so that I could like play business owner and play. Oh my God. Love that. <laughs> and like fake business. So when I started, part of me was like, oh, this is just another kind of fake thing. Like until you have clients, you are just like the brand and all that like planning stuff. Like I was like, what are, you know, what are my SOPs going to be? And like when a client comes in, how is that going to work? Like everything I was reading was like, you need to have all these foundations in place. And I took that, I think, to the extreme where I should have just been trying different clients on or doing more Mm -hmm. kind of like work People are always like, oh, you know, I never work like on the business. And I'm like the opposite where I'm like, I work too much on business. Like that is my like comfort (laughs) place is like, how can I change my email signature? And how can I make this template different instead of working on on actual client stuff, which is not great. I think it's, I think it's easy to go by the way to like either extreme yes. because both are super exciting and both like really kind of suck you in and it's harder to just kind of balance them and combine them for sure. Yeah. I have, yeah, I can't, I don't think that I have found the balance of that. And some weeks it's just all client and nothing else. And other weeks it's the opposite. So I think it's just being comfortable with kind of that dichotomy and that it will shift. Yeah, I'm going back now to something that I used to do. And I I stopped doing it when I was recovering from COVID. And that was already like 18 months ago. So I just kind of grabbed myself and decided that I have to get back to it. And that's like one day of the week, I'm not doing any client calls, not doing any client tasks, just focusing on the business and it could be like things that are business adjacent like the podcast or just me resting that's also yes business. <laughs> but yeah no no client work 
one day of the week. And you can stick to that. I hope I will be able to. I last time I did it, it lasted for like six months. So I I That's feel great. like I can, yeah. I feel like I can do it. If I look like, you know, if I take a look at client stuff like without actually jumping on calls with them and working on stuff like you know outside of like a few minutes here and there I think that's good enough yeah I think even a half day even two hours of just like as long as it's dedicated I think it's so much about consistency even 30 (laughs) even 12 minutes for yourself is a win (laughs) but I think you're right it's like consistency like if you could say you know Friday's at one and sometimes it's, you know, one to five and sometimes it's one to two, but just having like a set, a set block definitely helps. Yeah. It's having, it's having that boundary in place. And even if you're not able to actually really adhere to it, like, you know, to the T it's still, it's still okay because it still kind of provides you the, the frame of like, even, you know, just, doing your scheduling link and excluding that half of a day or a day or whatever. Oh, my, yeah. My scheduling link is it's like eight (laughs) hours total. Like it's not a lot of time. I was just thinking about it because I was doing a new scheduling link and I was setting it up and it said like, do you want a buffer between calls? And I said, actually, yes, I do. And it's not something that I would give myself if you know, if I wouldn't be like in this kind of mood of you have to do it, otherwise you won't have like five minutes to get a glass of water, right? Yeah, I think the the buffer is helpful. But then I go to the other extreme of if I can just have four hours of back to back calls, and that means that the other four hours of the day have no calls instead of jumping back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Sometimes that works. Yeah, whatever works yeah. for you. Sometimes it's better to have like just a few days of calls and then the rest of the week is free to do hands-on work or just yeah that's the dream not do work uh and it's it's like really a matter of preference and i think it's also a matter like it doesn't have you don't have to have a set preference for life it's also a matter of like just the season that you are in in life right that's what i have a hard time with because i am like once i've committed to this it's forever and I need to let go yeah. of that. <laughs> Listen, you knew what you're going to do since you were a baby, essentially. I find it, I don't know why, I, like just talking about it out loud, it seems, I think like many people will find my fascination with this weird, but because that's like the way people used to be. They used to do like the one thing, right? Yeah. But I wear so many different hats and have had so many <laughs> different businesses that I find that kind of dedication and commitment, I find it so amazing. I, I'm a little jealous of you because I, I, think, oh, thanks. I think it's so cool to have that one topic. And of course, with ESG, it's a fascinating topic that contains so many different things and constantly constantly changing uh so it's never i'm sure it never gets old but still it's like the one thing that you kind of keep learning keep evolving and (laughs) it seems like a dream i have to say and i know i'm probably like kind of projecting all my like fantasies and dreams and the things that i am not into it (laughs) but have you like ever entertained like um like the idea of doing something else have you like looked at different professions or like expertise I'm really like 
I know it's my child. I'm fascinated by it. I don't know. I think it's when you were talking, I just think it's so interesting about like, none of that seems in my control. Like it's just my personality. It's the way that I've always worked. Like I am a true, all my eggs in the same basket. I cannot change the color of the basket. Like once it is there, it is there. And it, I can't imagine trying to do multiple things. It would send me into a spiral. Like I just can't think about it without feeling stressed. (laughs) So I think it's just so, I don't, it's just so interesting to be that. I think that's just innate. Like I couldn't change it in my dream, like other world, other life scenario. Like I'm a book editor or something with books, like something. Oh yeah. I could definitely see you doing something different like that, but I don't know. I think to your point, like just kind of watching ESG evolve And I think that I could move either into a different kind of client profile or I've been learning a lot the past 18 months-ish more about, you know, ESG and venture capital and ESG in a true early stage startup and how to think about ESG in a Series A company versus a Series E. So I think I have kind of spread that, but in the same kind of ESG. Yeah, and there's so much... Yeah, in the same kind of ESG sandbox. I do really like to learn, and that is something that I will always keep doing, but definitely within the parameter that I have set for myself and that I feel comfortable in. So I have to say, as a parent, I feel like your story is such a good kind of use case for like the impact of parenting. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. My parents will be very excited to hear you say that. (laughs) It makes me think about (laughs) my conversations with my son. (laughs) Much, yeah. Now I'm going to examine them with like, you know, (laughs) with a a magnifying glass. I think, I mean, even, I don't think that was part of my parents' like grand plan. I think they were pretty specific about Sort of like I'm saying, like with clients, like they were like, these are our values and this is. Yeah, no, it sounds like it was just they were embodying what they cared about. And I think that's what's so amazing. So uh, we only have a few minutes, but uh, from everything that he said and just from following you, I have a feeling, a strong feeling that just like me, you're very much into SOPs and reading about kind of practices for your business and all of that. So do you want to share with us a few resources that you like? I loved free time, just like you did. I listened to your Oh, I love it so much. Oh, I'm so jealous you got to talk to her. I have a coach that I really like. Her name is Ellen. Uh, She is a nice balance of just kind of getting things done and kind of leaning into, I think a lot of coaches get into sort of like the feelings and that and I just don't think that way. I don't approach anything like that. But if I can have like a system and a process in place, then everything else will come after that. So I need that in place in order to have my, yeah, my feelings in that boundary of the process. (laughs) I have been using Notion. I love Notion. That has been my like. I have not been able to really get into it. I'm just like, I keep trying and then getting super overwhelmed but I know Jenny is super into it my friend Liron who told me about Jenny uh who's also on the podcast loves it 
I'll have to pick your brain offline and hear more about how you use Notion. We can talk about it. The other thing that I need to specify with Notion is that it's just for me. Like I'm not using it as part of a team. I think it would be much harder to do as part of a team, but just for my kind of tasks and calendar and storing resources, I find that helpful. I also definitely try, it's been harder this summer to have like no meeting afternoons. Yeah, that's awesome. Or mornings, like just picking times where I'm separate from that. And I don't, this freaks a lot of people out. I don't keep email on my phone. Oh, I don't wow. keep on my phone. I like having to be at my desk, at my separate office space, and I'm doing work there. And then when I'm not there, I'm not doing work or it will just consume. So how often will you be checking your email? Oh, I check it all day long at work, which is not great, but <laughs> only from you know, like 10 to seven, 10 to six. Those are my regular work hours. But that I don't... sounds so healthy, Eliza. Like I can't <laughs> even tell you, you probably hear it all the time. I am so, wow. I, I'm going to have to think about that. It's and even, I mean, I've talked to people that I'm just like, just like on Friday, just delete it. Like if you have to keep it during the week, fine. And some people do, some people it's, I think it is more efficient, obviously, if you can just be like responding or doing stuff. But again, I think just because I live in that like extreme of like all or nothing that I can't, I need to have it away. Oh, I totally get you. So I will give a tip that I'm not practicing, but now that we brought it up, I might start <laughs> go back to practicing it again. If you don't feel like taking email off of your phone, maybe just turn off the notifications turn and hide it a few years ago i turned off the notifications for email slack whatsapp and all social media platforms and it was glorious because i am who i am and i think eliza that could probably relate i would check them every i don't know 10 minutes 15 minutes yeah anyway so then just not having the extra noise of them like also like pulling me in whenever like there's a new thing because I yes. can't, I was just having a, a conversation with a friend who showed me like the amount of like open, like WhatsApp text that she has. And I was like, I can't, I, I wouldn't be able to see that red ticker and like not have, you know, an attack. Right. And not be able to, I would want to immediately look at it. I will. I mean, there are some times if I'm like, I can think of probably three times in the past month where either like, like I had jury duty and then I had it on my phone or like sometimes, but I would say as a rule and 90%. So I'm not. Yeah. So perfect. just remove that. Yeah. Remove yeah. that red ticker, remove the notifications. Even if you like don't completely remove them, but like mute them for a few days of the week or a few hours or whatever, that could be such a big change. And I honestly, I, I went back to notifications just because I, think I switched to a new phone and forgot to update the settings. And now, now that we talked about it, wow, this this episode is going to have so much impact on me and such <laughs> practical, practical impact on me. So thank you for that, Eliza. And thank you for coming on. You're I had welcome. a blast. And I sent you all the oldest daughter TikTok. <laughs> yes, please. Oh, yes. My sibling group will appreciate that. And then I have multiple cousins that are also older sisters and we will often share the 
the TikToks. So <laughs> that's awesome. And we will share your website on the show notes. Yeah, I can't wait to share this uh, with the world. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. What do you do when you know what do you want to do? That is, that maybe doesn't sound like a good question or like a question at all. But to me, it's actually fascinating. So we just had Lisa from Apps Flyer on the podcast, and she was talking about, hey, as a kid, you don't necessarily know or have to know what you're going to do when you grow up or what you're going to do professionally. And even if you do, maybe it's okay to, or it's for sure okay to challenge yourself and to just experiment and explore. And that is a very natural place for me personally and for many, many of my friends who, who are kind of multi-hyphenates. But I love, I really have loved talking to Eliza and hearing about having a calling, having like this kind of clarity of like what is the role that you want to play or at least what is the world that you want to play a role in. And I think one of the interesting things, maybe more nuanced to listen to and to look for in this episode is how even within that clarity, you still have to be so flexible and to learn so many things. And I'm really curious to hear from you, listeners. Did you always know what you were going to do? Did you think you were going to do one thing and then it changed? Are you maybe doing now something, a profession or a job title that didn't exist when you were a kid? And where do you find your clarity, but also your flexibility within it? I hope you enjoyed this one too. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Looks Like Work. You can find resources, links, and of course, the episode's show notes at roomsandwords.com. That's rooms, like a room, and words, and like an end.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, I really, really hope that you'll like my newsletter too. My newsletter is something that I send out every week and I share thoughts, links, books, and just other things that I find thought-provoking, interesting, somehow contributing to these conversations that we're having here, or sometimes just joyously distracting. Again, the newsletter is sent out every week, and you can find the link to sign up on my website at roomsandwords.com. And I really hope to see you there, and of course, to see you here next week. Have a good one.